We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. This time of the year, I, I, I teach a middle school class uh, of worldview. I think I've mentioned it in here before, but we, we go through the, the major questions that humans face. What is the nature of man? What is the nature of the universe? And, and one of the things we do after we establish the, the foundation of a Christian worldview is we go into the arts and watch movie. And just this week, I had a group of uh, eighth graders over to my house and we watched It's a Wonderful Life. And it's one of my favorites and it's one of your favorites, I'm sure, if you've seen it and if you haven't, shame on you. But as I was thinking through the sermon this week and, and processing through our text, I thought about George Bailey, how the beginning of the, the, the movie, he's young and idealistic. He has big plans to travel and see the world, to live abroad. Uh, he has an adventurous spirit, and one thing after another happens in his life and, and leaves him almost with a sense of a festering resentment that he thinks he's going to go travel and his brother goes off to school. And then when his brother comes home, he's supposed to have the opportunity, but he realizes his brother's got a wonderful job opportunity. So George stays home to run the savings alone a little longer. Uh, he's going on his honeymoon and he and his wife are about to travel out and there's a run on the bank. So they have to give all their savings to, to save the savings alone. And then uh, just as things are turning a corner again, uh, Uncle Billy hands Potter $8,000, which we did the math the other night. That's about $139,000 in today's money. He, he leaves it in the newspaper and George is ruined. And as you know, he goes and he's ready to jump off the bridge and end his life when Clarence steps in. And, and what follows is, is obviously uh, Frank Capra's desire to show us the importance and the dignity of a single human life. That it's an incredible story to show the meaningfulness of a life that on the surface looks empty. But what George is feeling to that point is, is sort of a sense of resentment. And even though he makes the right decisions, you understand he expected something more. And so as we go through Pottersville and realize what happens if George had never been born from his brother's death to, to just debauchery and everything falling apart and Potter having everything and everyone's life is the worst without George, he says a prayer, and God restores everything, and he goes home, and the closing scene uh, is magical, right? That, that there's so much gratitude and thankfulness, and all the people in the city have come together, and they're, they're giving him gifts so that the savings alone can continue. But, but Jimmy Stewart is so powerful as George Bailey in, in showing us from the delight when he pulls out Zuzu's petals... To the, to the passion that he hugs his kids halfway up the stairs, the eagerness, the, the zeal that he has to re-engage in his life. And, and I think about that when I think about our text because basically what we're going to be looking at tonight is, is this opportunity that Israel has for a great do-over. That I wish almost there could be a, an It's a Wonderful Life Part two, because I think what we would see is that George 
was grateful and thankful and appreciative, and he started appreciating all that he had instead of being discontent with what he didn't have. And that he would, we would see a renewed sense of appreciation for what that is. Well, basically, that's what we're looking at with Israel as, as God has raised up Cyrus to send them back home, as he's raised up Zerubbabel and Ezra and now Nehemiah, that they've rebuilt the temple, they've rebuilt the people and restored their worship, they've rebuilt the wall. Now they have an opportunity basically to start again. Then our text tonight, we're going to see Nehemiah lead the people to restart. And he wants them to restart well in light of all that God has done. You see, looking back through time, they realized their time in Babylon and Persia was for a purpose. That they had taken for granted. They had taken for granted all that God had given them, all that God had done. And he was patient, and he was patient, and he was patient. Until finally, their idolatry and their disloyalty led him to allow them to experience the consequence of Babylon. And so here they are, after that consequence, looking back, I've got to think they were grateful that God didn't end us there. That we, that we read earlier through the, through the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah that God still had a plan for them. He wasn't abandoning them. And so here we are today, as we looked at last week, the covenant renewal with God. Now we're actually going to look at the physical putting this thing back together. Now that the wall is completed, how are we going to bring the people back into the city? And how are we going to establish a culture, a city that maintains its separation from the world. Chapters 11 and 12, we're going to cover a lot of real estate tonight, but what you need to know is there are three basic things that happen in this text. The first thing we're going to look at is the actual repopulation of the city. How is it that we decide who lives in the city? Because to this point, most of the people have moved to the outskirts and the villages around. Now we're going to actually bring them into Jerusalem to live. The second thing we're going to look at is the dedication of the walls. Now that these walls are up, we're going to dedicate them to the Lord. And then finally, we're going to see the dedication of the storehouse. That that's the three big movements. There's some lists in here that are going to have some significance to them, not in the individual names, but in the overall focus of what the list is. But I want you to think of tonight's text really with this idea of the reestablishment of the people to worship God based on the memory of what they've been through because of their disobedience. So look with me at chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. It says, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. If you remember back in chapter 7, verse 4, it says, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. We're asking people to come back essentially to the pile of rubble 
that is, that was Jerusalem, to give up their comfort on the outskirts. Remember, Haggai rebukes them for their paneled houses. So we know they established safe houses, but we're asking a certain number of them to move into the rubble, to embrace life in the city. He, he calls Jerusalem the holy city. It's important to note, with Ezra and Nehemiah, they've, they work to establish this city as the holy city, as, as what God had intended, a city that's set apart from the rest of the world. It, it's in the world, but it's not of the world. The title is holy not because there's no sin, but because of the history, because of the things that have happened there because of the city's relationship with God. The temple is God's dwelling place on the earth. So we're not calling it a holy city because there's no sin there. And this is where our story picks up. You know, I think Nehemiah, this is a pretty wise process he engages in. It says they cast lots to bring one out of 10. The casting of lots in the Bible is, is an acknowledgement and awareness. It allows God to direct. Remember when Achan was hiding the idols in his tent and the, the whole community was being judged? They cast lots and God pointed all the way down uh, to Achan for his sin. That what Nehemiah says is, hey, I don't want this to be a political decision. I don't want this to be a popularity decision. I don't want people resenting me for whether I did or didn't pick them to come back into the city. That there's an acknowledgement that we're going to let God decide who comes back in. And as a result of that, he both acknowledges God's sovereignty. The moving of the people into the city isn't perceived as a, a punishment or a favor but, but realizing that God is the one that actually judges the heart and God is the one who's going to decide who comes and who stays. And we don't have any record here of anyone refusing. It's a great picture of their faithfulness and willingness to embrace what God's put in them. Think about it. You've been out. You've established a homestead. You're comfortable. And now you're being asked to move your family into rubble you're being asked to walk and to trust God and His faithfulness. You're being uprooted from probably whatever community you had established, uh, but yet they're faithful. In 11.3, it says, These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in the towns of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servant. That what we see is religious leaders that are living among the people. You know, I, I went to Myanmar a number of years back and we got to visit a, 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 a big, I think it's the, the largest reclining uh, Buddha in the world. And it's like you're almost in this shopping mall, but around this shopping mall is a monastery. And I don't know what you guys thought of Buddhist monasteries, but I had a pretty fantastical, you know, idea that it was this really devout, serious place. And so the lady we're with takes us back and we walk around by the monastery. And lo and behold, we walk into one of the monasteries because they're open and the guys that are, 
separating themselves for holiness, supposedly, or sitting there around about a 13-inch TV all watching a talk show. It's one of the most shocking moments of my life. Just this is not what I expected with Buddhist monastery. But the impression of the separation and the demand of reverence was still there. When you went out to the actual Buddha, there were these eight, 10 inch blocks that were built. They were little platforms that were probably three by three. And on those platforms, the, the, the monks would come and they would kneel on those platforms so they could be slightly above everyone. And I think when we look in the Bible, we see priests who are set apart. But we see priests who are people, priests who are among the people, priests who are, are, are in Levites who are mediators for us before God. And I think here in this spot, he lets us know that they're among the people. How many people came back? We don't know. Uh, based on the numbers, you've got a couple thousand uh, that are listed here. Uh, if you add wives and children, commentators will speculate between ten and 12,000, but the text doesn't let us know. But, but you realize this is a big group of people that are going to be coming back into the city. You think about the infrastructure they need. They're going to need food. They're going to need water. They're going to need a way to, to, to gather. They're going to need homes. Like we kind of blow through this text and out, without thinking through the logistics of this, you know, the leaders have a big responsibility in establishing for these people. But we see leadership as well. In verse chapter 11, verse 9, we see Joel, an overseer from Benjamin. Uh, also in verse 9, Judah, the second commander over Jerusalem. In 10 and 11, Jedediah, the ruler of the temple. Verse 14, Zabdiel, the overseer. Uh, in verse 16, Shabbatai and Jazabad, overseeing the outside work of the house of God. Uh, in 1117, Mattathiah, the leader of the praise singers. Uh, Bakbukia, second in rank in verse 17. The idea is we don't get a lot of specifics about these guys, but we realize that God has appointed leaders in these places to bring the people back in and to establish the city as that, that's separate, but also ordinary everyday people that have the same needs that you and I have. Verse 14, mighty men of valor, that likely we're talking about military men. He doesn't give a lot of insight, but, but we're preparing this city for the future. One commentator said the huge movement of people who had, built, who had to build hundreds of new homes in Jerusalem demonstrates the commitment of the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, temple servants, and many common Israelites to not abandon the house of our God. Remember back in chapter 10, verse 40, we will not abandon the house of our God. That's an easy thing to say. But when the rubber meets the roads and you've got to provide food and housing for this many people, to see these priests and Levites and servants and common people step up and do it is a whole new thing. That basic commitment guided much of what Nehemiah and the leaders of the people did, and the narrator's record testified to the fulfillment of that pledge. That, that they know if we're going to move it back into this city, we've got to do it right. 
So that whole list you've got in 11, chapter 3, verse 23, it's similar to the list that we have in 1 Chronicles 9. Remember, 1 and 2 Chronicles are written to this very community to remind them of God's faithfulness. One of the things that struck me throughout all of Ezra and Nehemiah is how much time we spend remembering. And then you add the layer of First and Second Chronicles over it, and you realize, wow, sometimes we can be thick-headed. Our attention span's about this long. Unfortunately, I think if we did create It's a Wonderful Life too, what you'd have is about five minutes of gratitude, and then he'd slip back into the same patterns if he's anything like me. But constantly, over and over, we're reminding these people of all that God's done, all of his faithfulness, that First and Second Chronicles highlight the provision and the protection of the Davidic line that's going to carry all the way to the person of Jesus Christ, to this very community, community, because they had to hear it. A reminder that God provides. Verses 16 and 18, the Levites were responsible for different types of work. And, and it's interesting here, I think of Levites as, as priests, but they're responsible for, for all of the care of the temple. They're responsible for the outside work of the house of God, that they're taking care of the, of the property. They gather, they store provisions for the temple, and they care for the building itself. Ultimately, for the worship of God. It's not, it's not keeping the temple in good shape for the temple's sake. It's not keeping the temple in shape as a, as a sign of the strength of the community. It's keeping the temple in shape so that it's appropriate for the worship of God, that that's its purpose. Verses 25 to 36, we look at a list of villages where they first settled when they returned. You know, it's, we're not completely sure why he would put this list here, but, but what I think he's doing is he's, he's letting us know that all the people that move back into the city are legitimately Israelites, that we're not allowing idolaters from around the community and the countryside to move in. We're not allowing uh, this thing to be tainted with idol worship that these are people who are legitimately Israelites that are moving back in uh, and, and taking care of it. He didn't list all the cities that, that people are from. He, there's no mention of Ephraim or Manasseh, but he's showing us that there's a widespread geographical representation in this repopulation. We're not just picking favorites from one group. We're not just grabbing one village and moving them in. We're grabbing from all the villages and pulling them close. Chapter 12, the first 26 verses that really give us a sense as Nehemiah gives us this list of priests and Levites that Nehemiah's primary concern isn't just repopulating the city. He's trying to repopulate the city with the right people for the right purposes. I think of the way we do development here in, in the States. You know, we're, we're going to build a building here because we anticipate it gets a lot of traffic. Um, and so whether it's a retail side or a housing development, we're going to develop and just hope whoever comes because 
primary, primarily business is the main purpose. That we're going to establish a new center. We're going to establish it with enticements to get as many people as possible because you've got to hit critical mass for the place to thrive, right? That's really what Nehemiah is doing here. He's not building a, a, a city merely for commerce. He's not building a city primarily for comfort. He's rebuilding a city that's set apart for God himself, that, that he's concerned ultimately with the spiritual health of the people that will come back into the city. So he makes sure that priests, Levites, temple servants, the leaders, that, that these are the actual people God would have there the people that are specified by God from the tribe of Levi back to Numbers chapter 8. The dedication of these people, the Levites, for this service, not just whoever volunteers, but you've got to be a Levite. The list covers Joshua from the time of Zerubbabel all the way forward to Judah who came after the time of Nehemiah, that this is an extensive list that shows a continuity in the priesthood. It also, though, as we look at the list, and and as we've gone through several lists we've pointed out, it also shows the work of individuals, that, that we don't celebrate the individual work in some sort of an award ceremony, but we recognize that God primarily does his work through individuals, individuals being faithful. You know, as we, as we think about this, I think about Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. Paul says, He gave apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. God's plan from the ages past has been to have individuals who are faithful to shepherd, to lead others, to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that what you see here in chapter 12 of Nehemiah is an establishing of of the priests and the leaders in a way that shepherds these people into communion with God. That that's how God works. He works not often through miraculous intervention, but through people. So that's the basis, that's the foundation of this reestablishing of the people in the city. Chapters 27 to 47, we get into really the heart of what we're seeing in the reestablishment. So we've seen the repopulation of the city. Now we look at this celebration and dedication of the wall and the storerooms. That, that what we see in these people as they've gotten this great redo is that they're going to come together and dedicate this to the Lord, that they want to start out on the right foot, that they want to start out as a community committed to the Lord. That 
we notice their commitment to honoring God. They've gathered, you know, in, in, Exodus, in Ezra chapter 3, they came together, remember? They came together uh, to celebrate and to praise God after the construction of the altar. They finish the altar, they come together and celebrate and praise God. In, in Ezra chapter 3, a little later, we see the foundation of the temple being set. And what do the people do? They come together to celebrate and to praise God for all that he's done in helping them establish that foundation of the temple. When they finish the temple in Ezra 6, what do they do? They come together to celebrate. And they come together to praise God for all that he's done. And so now, with the restoration of the wall and the building of the storehouse, they come together to do what? To celebrate and to worship God. That we recognize through all this that God has been the one that's taken care of them. That it's he who deserves the celebration. It's he who deserves the praise. And what's interesting is, is we talk about altar, we talk about temple, we talk about foundation of the temple. These are all spiritual things, but this is a wall of protection around the city and a storehouse. I think God doesn't see this, this line that we sometimes draw between the sacred and the secular, that, that in his mind, it's all part of what he does and, and who these people are, that, that in building this wall, God's hand was in it, just like building the temple. Whatever you do, work at it, is working for the Lord, not for men. We don't draw a separation here. That this wall in this storehouse is just as much a picture of his physical protection and provision as the temple was for his spiritual protection and provision. And I think when you look at the wall itself, you realize this wall and this storehouse they hold a special place in God's eye. The wall removes the repro reproach, the shame. That if you and I had passed by Jerusalem after the Babylonian or during the Babylonian captivity, we would have seen the city in ruins and the shame that came with the city in ruins. Now the walls have been rebuilt. The shame has been removed and, and, and God is the one who removed that shame. The, the full storerooms store signify God's provision. And both these things, the wall and the storehouse, are set apart for the glory of God. As we look in uh, verse 27... It says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness and thanksgivings and with singing with cymbals and harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together for the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of Nephrodites and from Beth Gilgal, from the region of Geba, Asmacheth, from the singers that built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought leaders of Jerusalem, or of Judah, up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs. And what we get is these two great choirs 
that are going to walk around the city so that everyone around is able to worship. This isn't a select few that are worshiping, it's the whole city. And I, and I read this sense of joy and delight, and it's almost impossible for me today to appreciate and understand what it must have felt like to look back at their history and realize that God has kept his word. He's reestablished the altar, he's reestablished the temple, and now he's protected us and taken away the shame that Jerusalem felt, the shame that was there. Because the shame wasn't just you live in a city whose walls are knocked down. The shame was your wickedness, your disobedience to God led you to his judgment and it's over. So the celebration that these people felt as a result of that shame being removed is magnificent. All these instruments, all these choir singers surrounding the city and calling everyone to a great worship service and how great the God who removed our shame, how great he is at keeping his promises, at providing for us, at taking care of us. It was him. It's, it's the natural outflowing of a, and it's a response to all that he's done for him. What about us? Have we had shame removed? Have we had reproach lifted from us? Has God taken care of us as well? And do we walk with the same appreciation? That, that over and over we see the priests being purified. And the idea of purification is ceremonial purification. Purification is not... Uh, the same, like, like purification is not sinless and being unclean is not the same as sin. That, that what we see in the clean unclean is a desire for God to demonstrate the separateness, the, the reality of holiness, that if you touch a dead body, you have to go through a purification before you can enter into God's presence. It's not an issue of sin, it's an issue of ceremonial cleanness. That it's a sign of of separation that the priests have to go through here. That before entering God's presence, uh, that we have, you know, one guy said it this way, it's a sign of separation, a requirement before entering God's presence at the temple. The restoration of Jerusalem would involve more than just moving people into the holy city. It would require a concerted effort to conform to God's instructions concerning ritual cleanness. Again, if we're going to do this thing over, we're going to do it right. So we're going to take ritual cleanness seriously. We're going to meet God on his terms, not on our terms. Because when we try to do it on our terms, it didn't turn out well for us. The priests and Levites would need discipline to discipline their behavior so that they could faithfully serve people who wanted to be purified in order to worship at the temple. They would need to dedicate themselves in sacred places like the store points, the wall, and the doors to fulfilling God's plans for his people. You know what, though? You and I don't have that requirement because Jesus paid that requirement for us. He removes our reproach. He removes our sin. That we can stand before God and have direct access to him through the blood of Christ. That this story is an image 
of the gospel in the sense that we, like the Israelites, can look back through our history. We can look back through our past and we see our sin, we see our reproach, and we grieve. But as we look to the one who paid for our sin, as we place our faith in him and he washes it all away, that we have no other choice but to be thankful that in a lot of ways, coming to faith in Christ prepares, gives us an opportunity to consider our own do-over, to say, what needs to change in my life as a result of all that Christ did for me? These people weren't doing these acts. They weren't celebrating and worshiping in order to earn God's favor. When I read this text, I see sheer celebration, joy, delight, appreciation for all that God's done for them. And their desire to move forward is an earnest desire to say, all that God has done for me, I want to honor him. We want this city to be something different. Now, moving forward a few years, it's not going to go so well. But in this moment, this moment of understanding and appreciation for all that God's done to them drives them to the point not only of worship, but of faithfulness, a desire to do things the way he would have them do things. That, that for you and I with the gospel, that when we place our faith in Christ, that our outward response to the gospel should be celebratory. We should be like George Bailey when, when, he, when he wakes up and realizes his life is still there. And he rushes home with an eagerness and a desire to embrace the life that God's given him. But that's what the gospel should do to us, that we've got such an appreciation that we were destined for eternal separation from God in hell. but that Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sin and gives us a chance to be clean, to be white, to, to, to do over what we've done earlier so that our response is gratitude. And how do we show our gratitude towards God? Through faithfulness. That, that there's an emotional thing I do in just the sense I feel Gratitude, the sense I feel, thank you, Lord. The sense I feel, appreciation. But there's this other thing that happens that if I'm truly thankful, if I truly get what he's done, then now I want my life to be conformed to what he intended it to be all along. The sin isn't this thing I, I tolerate and just treat like a bad habit, but the sin is something I grieve over. Sin is something I understand that leads to death so that my life now must conform to what he's done, that that, as Paul says, is my spiritual act of worship, that I offer my body a living sacrifice, that there is an emotional element, but there's a, there's a rubber-to-the-road element to our faith as well, not to earn God's love, not so that God will love us more, but it's purely out of a response and an awareness, just like these guys, 
an awareness that where we've been. They had a tangible reminder that's still fresh in their mind of what life was like in Babylon. And because of that, they have a deep appreciation for all that God has done. I pray that our hearts do the same thing, that that as we think of the gospel, we think of the death that we deserve, that we were headed toward, that in light of the gospel, though, that we respond with celebratory joy, that God, you did something I didn't deserve. You spared me from a death that I did deserve, and now take me, use me, help me do this right. that that's what the gospel does for us. That's what God did for us. That he has taken us, he has cleansed us. So now, just like the Israelites, as they, as they repopulate the city, as they dedicate the wall, as they dedicate this storehouse for the food and materials for the priests, may we look at our own lives with an appreciation and a dedication for all the things that God's done in our lives. And might we walk out of here with a renewed sense of of gratitude and a renewed sense of commitment and a renewed sense of awareness that God wants to take our lives, to have our lives set apart and to have our lives bring glory to him just as he did with Jerusalem. And so with that in mind, and, and with the gospel in mind, we move to a, to a time of communion. Uh, that, that tonight in communion, we're going to celebrate that fact that, that Jesus, through his blood, brought us into this community with an opportunity to walk together, with an opportunity to, um, to grow together, with an opportunity to appreciate all that God has done with an opportunity to appreciate the fact that when he died for our sin, he purified our heart. And that's the common bond that we have. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all that you've done in our lives. We thank you for the gospel that gives us, in a sense, a do-over. And at the same time, we recognize our continual need to confess our sin, our continual uh, willingness to embrace sin in our lives. And, and, and Lord, I pray that all of us would uh, walk before you, celebrating all that you've done, thankful for the blood of Christ.